the Jewish views on the Finsbury Park mosque attack, hear what happened when key religious leaders met with the Prime Minister and the Met Police Commissioner. The Pinocchio Brief, lawyer-turned-author Abby Silver tells us about her first novel, and we learn about the extraordinary lengths that businessman Larry Berkowitz went to to help a couple affected by the K's supermarket fire. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news from the past week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The annual Al Hoots Day march brought part of central London to a standstill. A few hundred people marched down Regent Street behind the Palestinian and Hezbollah terror flag before sitting down at the junction with Oxford Street on the afternoon of Sunday 18th of June. Many carried banners with messages including Boycott Israel, Freedom for Palestine and Zionism equals racism. One speaker at the march even blamed the devastating Grenfell Tower fire on Israel supporters. A counter-protest organised by Jewish groups, including the Zionist Federation, was also held nearby. Meanwhile, it's been reported that the alleged perpetrator of Monday's attack at Finsbury Park Mosque was reportedly plotting to target the Al Hoots Day march instead. 47-year-old Darren Osborne was detained by members of the public and then arrested by police after driving a van into worshippers at the North London site. According to the Daily Telegraph, Osborne made abusive and aggressive comments about the Al Hoots Day march in his local pub in Cardiff on Saturday evening, one day before he killed one and injured 11. Elsewhere, Otto Warmier, an American college student who was released by North Korea in a coma last week after more than a year in captivity, died on Monday. Doctors had described the 22-year-old's condition as a state of unresponsive wakefulness and said he suffered a severe neurological injury of unknown cause. President Donald Trump called North Korea a brutal regime after the death was announced. The broadcaster Natasha Kaplinsky was amongst a number of Jewish recipients to be recognised in the Queen's Birthday Honours List. Ms Kaplinsky has been awarded an OBE for her work with Holocaust survivors through the Holocaust Commission. Also on the list was Catherine Ashley, the former chair of the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, who was made an OBE for her services to Holocaust education. And finally, the author Judith Kerr, famous for The Tiger Who Came to Tea and the series of Mog the Cat books, has announced a new title at the age of 94. Katinka's Tale was inspired by the much-loved author's current and ninth cat. It will hit the shelves 47 years after her first Mog book was published. That's the news. Let's get a roundup of the sport now from Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Viv. Dudi Seller booked his place at this year's Wimbledon Championships after he won the ATP Challenger Nottingham event. Seller will be joined by two other Israelis at SW19, doubles player Jonathan Ehrlich and junior Yeshai Oliel. Yossi Benayoun has hit out at Israeli football supporters after he was booed by sections of the home crowd during their 3-0 home loss to Albania last week. The 37-year-old, who is Israel's most capped player, said, I'm embarrassed for those who booed me. They should go home and look at themselves in the mirror. And finally, Israel's Paralympic rowing team won bronze at the World Cup event in Poland. Completing the 2,000-metre course in just over seven and a half minutes, they achieved their third-place finish without Rio Paralympic gold medalist Morin Samuel, who missed out through injury. Remember, 
You can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed, and welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and news editor Justin Cohen. Welcome to you both. And now contrasting stories plague the front page this week, Rich, don't they, as the headline reads, An Assault on All Faiths. Yes, stark difference. We've gone for two different sides of interfaith Britain. On the top there is a very colourful image with two inset images. We've headlined it, the jihad is on our street. This, of course, is the the march that took place last weekend, the Al-Quds rally. It's an annual hate fest that's clearly targeting anti-Israel support. And also there's the issue here of how far do you go in terms of uh, your anti-Israel demonstration into anti-Semitism and supporting terrorism. This has been covered in the show a number of times, but just for the benefit of readers, that, uh, readers, there you go, I'm still thinking about print. Well, it's all right, technically speaking, readers will read it, but also for listeners as well. Hezbollah has a political and a military wing. The political wing is not prescribed, the military wing is prescribed. So to get around this, some of these clever little troublemakers and reprobates around Oxford Street on Sunday were pinning a little label to their Hezbollah flags and caps saying this flag is to show my support of the political wing only. Clearly taking the mickey, making legal law in this country uh, a laughing stock. It needs to be cracked down. Unfortunately, it's not the Mayor of London that can deal with this. It can only come from the very, very top. The government needs to take a firm line. We certainly are going to be pushing for that between now and next year to make sure these scenes are not repeated. Well, we keep hearing that, Justin, don't we? But how do we make sure they're not repeated? Up to now, we've, we've always relied on the fact that the police might use the power of interpretation to say that this is the same flag, whether it's the military wing or, or, or the political wing that's being waved here. And therefore, there's perhaps room for interpretation that even though the political wing isn't prescribed, they could take action on the basis that it's the same flag as the other one. Now, as we saw this for the first time this week, the organisers of this rally are clearly being emboldened. Not only were there more flags on the streets than there have been in recent years, but they were even pinning disclaimers to those flags saying that this is to denote our support of the political wing, which again was ridiculous, pinned an inch away from a big rifle as appears on on those flags. Look, it's clear that the only way of doing this properly and, and removing the element of doubt and the element of the police having to interpret is to change the law, is to prescribe both wings and, and not treat them differently. The fact is that even Hezbollah's leaders don't treat them differently. They consider them to be one and the same thing. And it's about time our government did the same. In the current climate where London has been hit by uh, terror attacks, Manchester, we are holding our breath, waiting in horror for the next atrocity. And you've got events like this and you've got police lining the streets protecting these people and not doing anything about it. And meanwhile, Meanwhile, we we put on the front page a couple of weeks ago how the biggest Israel celebration of the year has been cancelled because of the terror threat. So clearly there's a massive discrepancy here and the priorities are completely out of sync. And as Justin said, you've got these like these these people playing silly games with British law, pinning these disclaimers to images of rifles saying that they are not supporting a military solution. Well, look, luckily, as we said, that it is because there is a stark contrast on the page that there is some better news on the front page as well. What's occurring in the other story? Yes. Back in a world 
that we sadly live in. There was an appalling attack on a London mosque on Monday in Finsbury Park, a maniac repeating what he had seen on the streets of Westminster and London Bridge, ramming his vehicle into Finsbury Park Mosque, one of the iconic religious locations in our capital, killing one, injuring many. And the Jewish community this week have been standing shoulder to shoulder. We've had leaders of the reform movement, leaders of the orthodox movement at the Finsbury Park Mosque with the Prime Minister, standing shoulder to shoulder. The Chief Rabbi has expressed his remorse and sympathy as well. It's the side of interfaith Britain that we want to see, not, not the side that perhaps reflected above that on our front page. Well, let's have a look inside the paper. And a story that you've got at the moment is to do with the way that the headlines are being portrayed by the BBC and they have apologised for the way that they were portrayed as well. What's this story? Yeah, the BBC were quick to publish an incorrect headline when it came to the story of uh, Major Hadas Malko, who's the 23-year-old uh, Israeli soldier who was stabbed to death by a Palestinian lunatic. The headline that they initially went with and that was on Twitter, it was socialised on social media quite widely, was three Palestinians killed after deadly stabbing in Jerusalem. Now, of course, those three Palestinians were killers and they were rightly targeted and brought down to save anybody else from, from being murdered by them. I mean, we were talking about the, the horror of the terror attacks that have taken place in Britain in the last couple of weeks. Imagine three Muslims killed after deadly stabbing in, in London Bridge or Muslim killed after explosion in Manchester. This is the topsy-turvy sort of contrasting principle that, that you have to deal with when it comes to, and I hate using the term fake news because it's, it's such a trite term that's used so often these days, but that really is, I think, scrambling facts and turning them into a political statement more than a news headline. Well, as an employee of the BBC, I'm more inclined to defend them. But the only thing that I could ever put it down to is that the individuals who are responsible for creating those headlines may not necessarily have the same interest in Israel that, say, we do. So it's very easy for us to look at it from the Israeli point of view. And they probably genuinely thought, innocently enough, that by putting that headline, that that was what they needed to run with. Whether or not we think it's right or wrong is a very different matter. Sadly, this is this is something that comes up way too often. It's it's a it's a double standard we see way too often. Not just with the BBC, it should be said. There are other news organisations, major news organisations, who should know better. And yes, this could have been done by a fairly junior person who hadn't gone through the rule books and so on. Didn't really wasn't really familiar with the incident. But the fact is that if there is a feeling on a news desk that there's a difference between, if you like, a terror attack in Israel versus a terror attack in London, and that is what comes across here, then there's a problem. There's a major problem. And it's not a... But that's assuming that is what the problem is. Well, again, this is a double standard which is held not just within some news organisations, seemingly sometimes, but in some of the wider public as well. Uh, There isn't an equivalence drawn between when there's an attack in Israel and when there's an attack in, in the UK. There is a timing issue, of course, when stories evolve in natural time and breaking news. And often the media has to fight against social media, which doesn't have to adhere to the same standards of accuracy. So the social media might be running away with a story, might be inventing things in one direction, whereas the, a newsroom has to take a far calmer and clearer and level-headed way about its reflection of, of what's taking place. But even with that, I think this, this headline is remarkably inaccurate. 
and insensitive. And, and it was reflected in the statement that the BBC said. I'll just read out here. We accept the original headline was not appropriate. It did not reflect the nature of events and we subsequently changed it. There was no intention to mislead audiences. We regret any offence caused. So look, the, the issue is, is closed and hopefully the next one won't be happening anytime soon. OK, just finally... There is a bit of an icon in Golders Green that has been saved from potential demolition. I am, of course, talking about the Golders Green Clock Tower. Yes, yes. This is a, an icon that, you know, Big Ben, Eiffel Tower, Leaning Tower of Pisa and the Golders Green Clock Tower. It's, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's something that you know, was part of my childhood. I used to meet my friends under it before we went off to Brent Cross during my days as a, a JFS student. And it's very, very, I'm very relieved to say that there's a huge big redevelopment plan for Golders Green Station that's being planned. And TfL have decided after an outcry that it will not be dismantling the clock tower for redevelopment. The station will still be going to be, it's going to be one of the big hubs of Northwest London. So it's going to be an exciting development there. It's already a big sprawling bus station and, and big Northern Line station. But now it's going to be even larger, integral to Northwest London. London's travel and transport hub, but the clock tower will remain. Excellent. Well, unfortunately, that's where we'll have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week. But thank you both very much indeed. And don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Various religious leaders of different London-based communities met with the Prime Minister Theresa May and Metropolitan Police Commissioner Cresta Dick. It follows on from the attack at Finsbury Park Mosque, which you've just been hearing about, which left one person dead and several others injured. The meeting was held at the site in North London on the Monday, just ahead of a vigil that evening. Among the attendees was President of Community Security Group Shomrim, Rabbi Herschel Gluck, OBE. I've been speaking to Rabbi Gluck to find out more about it, and I started by asking him to tell us who else was at the meeting. In that particular meeting, there were various faith leaders from across the spectrum, and it was very much a show of unity and concern of people from all sectors of the London community. And what was the purpose behind it? The purpose was to discuss what happened and what needs to be done in its aftermath. And what does need to be done? There needs to be greater security for the Muslim population throughout the country and to help the Muslim community integrate and more legislation to outlaw Islamophobia. How are the Muslim communities of not just essentially London, but maybe even the UK going to benefit from the knowledge that the Jewish community has possessed for, let's be honest, quite a long time? Unfortunately, we are no strangers to being up against threats. And now, of course, the Muslim community also facing similar threats. How are they going to benefit from what we can teach them? We have for some time been sharing our knowledge with the Muslim community and been liaising with the Muslim community with regards to racists and Islamophobes and people who, who have a violent agenda, how to protect themselves and how to combat this negative phenomena. But of course, this is all very much, if for want of a better term, your bag, isn't it? Because 
being in the position you are with Shomrim, obviously security is always at the forefront of your mind. So what sort of advice have you given some of our friends in the Muslim community in your time? We have cooperated with them in providing security for their institutions. And we have been partners with them in discussing with government, with police, with the security services, the challenges that they face and how to deal with those challenges. At this meeting that was held in light of the attack at Finsbury Park Mosque, Prime Minister May was there, as I've mentioned before in this interview, as was Cresta Dick, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner. What was their reaction and what were they saying? So let's start with Prime Minister May, first of all. What did she express following this to try and reassure not just the Muslim community, but all communities? I was very impressed with Prime Minister May's attitude, her willingness to engage, her humility, her listening skills, her ability to to be humble. It was it was very touching that she came and she wanted to hear from the faith community leaders our feelings and our views on the situation and how best to correct the difficulties that the Muslim community and other communities are faced with. Because let's not underestimate what a significant moment this was. Yes, obviously, it was a horrible reason that all the faith leaders came together. But in the presence of Prime Minister May and also we'll get on to Police Commissioner Cresta Dick in just a moment. But this was quite significant, and especially considering how quickly it was turned around. It's quite interesting because Diane Abbott was also in at the meeting. So in other words, it wasn't party political at all. And I would go as far as to say it wasn't political at all. It was a true desire by all people in the room to show their concern for the Muslim community and how best to help them. But what was also interesting is that right there in that one moment, you had representatives from so many different walks of London life, primarily London, because it obviously it was a London-focused meeting, but obviously it applies to the country as a whole. But just in that one moment, it encapsulated so brilliantly, didn't it, all that makes London as colourful as it is. Yes, it was an extremely colourful room, but the colour was very much in the background, in on the table, as, as if to say, were real issues, issues of life and death, issues how to protect the lives of the community, issues how to help the Muslim community to feel part of the fabric of British society, to feel that they are valued as an integral and important part of the British mosaic. And there were real substantial discussions with regards to these issues. But do you think that the Muslim community feels any less a part of the fabric of British life than, say, the Jewish community does? Uh, On the night, I was there soon after the terrorist attack took place. A lot of the young Muslims felt that the police were not taking the matter serious, that the media was giving this a different category than other terrorist attacks that had taken place recently, and they felt that this was because because it happened to Muslims, so therefore it was of a lesser importance. And there was a lot of anger, 
And I was scared that there was going to be a riot. And the police were scared. The police actually circled themselves with their police wagons. They were really scared that this is going to get out of hand. But the funny thing was, some might think it's funny, that the young Muslims had confidence in me as a Jewish rabbi. And they discussed their frustrations with me. And they asked me to speak to the media, which I did. And that helped to cool the situation and to put it back on the straight and narrow. With You mentioned the Met Police there. Met Police Commissioner Cresta Dick, as I mentioned, was present at the meeting as well. What was the reaction from her and what did she pledge as far as the police service is concerned? I mean, she pledged that the police service will, will and has committed all resources possible to protecting the Muslim community now and in the future, and especially during the month of Ramadan. And just finally, what would you say that you have taken away from this? Because I know that you are in a position of great authority within the community and that you do obviously go off and meet people from different communities and you do a fair share of integrating. But what would you say specifically you've taken away from this particular occurrence? Of course, the attack, the terrorist attack, was deeply shocking. And I was very afraid of the ramifications of this attack. But as they say, every cloud has a silver lining. It was wonderful to see the strength of the relationship between the Jewish community and the Muslim community and the Muslim community and the Jewish community, that at this time, when they felt under attack, they felt that the Jewish community was there for them, and they really appreciated that and welcomed the Jewish community and showed their deep love and brotherhood with the Jewish community. President of Shomrim, Rabbi Herschel Gluck, speaking to me there about the meeting he, along with other community leaders, attended with the Prime Minister and Metropolitan Police Commissioner following the attack at Finsbury Park Mosque. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Tony will be joined by journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and founder of West End Travel, David Siegel. They'll be discussing the Al-Quds Day March. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Larry Berkowitz after he went to extraordinary lengths to help a couple affected by the fire at Kay's supermarket in Golders Green. But first, you may not have heard of Abby Silver, but if her new book, The Pinocchio Brief, is anything to go by, you soon will have done. Abby comes from Leeds but lives in Hertfordshire with her family, and she also happens to be a lawyer. Arts editor Kate Fulton who also happens to be a lawyer, has been speaking to her to find out about her first published novel. Kate started by asking Abby to tell us a bit about her background. My maiden name was Feinberg and I grew up in Leeds and I went to the Jewish schools in Leeds, the Bradetsky and Morris Silman. And actually, my father went on to become the headmaster of the Morris Silman. And I then went to my local high school round Hay High and moved on to study law at Girton College, Cambridge. And so your writing, was this something that started developing when you were at school or later on or when you, while you were a lawyer? 
I think I always wanted to write books because my parents were both teachers. Our house was always full of novels, although they were mostly classic novels, not very much modern. And I suppose I didn't really get that much opportunity because I was so busy with all the usual things, exams and work, and then after that, family. And so it actually took until I had time off for having my children that I got the opportunity to sit down and actually think, you know what, I'd, I'd quite like to uh, to try my hand at writing something. And we've now got the Pinocchio brief as a result of this work. It's a wonderful title. I mean, I think of Pinocchio and I immediately think of nose growing and lies. Yes, well then you you are on the right line. Am I? (laughs) Tell us a bit about the book then. Is it fiction and what's the story? It is fiction. It's a, a legal thriller, which probably won't surprise you given my background. And it's about a 15-year-old boy, Raymond Maynard, and he's accused of murdering his teacher at school. And his mother decides that obviously he needs a good defence and she appoints two lawyers to look after him and prepare his defence, who are both women. So Constance is a young solicitor and Judith is a veteran barrister who's brought back from retirement to defend him. And then just moving on really to give you a bit of a clue to the title. So the Pinocchio in the title is actually some software which the government has decided that it should bring in to Raymond's trial to watch his face and his movements as he gives his evidence and decide if he's telling the truth or not. And so that's the link with the Pinocchio, obviously, because when Pinocchio told lies, his nose grew. But on this occasion, the idea is that you give yourself away by your sort of more subtle Mm -hmm. facial movements. Is this based on something you've seen before? It's quite an interesting concept, but we do have lie detectors and similar type of thing. Is this a made up type of new software? It does have its basis in something that is actually a real product. I had read an article some years back about a similar kind of product, and there is a product in existence. There's probably more than one. There's lots of research, and actually you'll see in the opening of the book where Raymond himself talks about lie detection techniques. There are lots and lots of products because the polygraph itself has been found to be so flawed. I think it's only about 60% accurate. There are lots of people trying to come up with safer ways, more accurate ways of determining whether we're truthful or not. And, and we talk about that a little bit in the uh, in the book. Did you have a go with a polygraph or some sort of lie detector yourself to see how they work during your research? No. How did you do your research for this book? Well, it's a fictional story. The story takes us through the lawyers gathering evidence. And then we have a lovely big courtroom scene at the end. So, Are you, Were you familiar with that whole process close up? I'm not a criminal lawyer. I'm actually a commercial litigator, but that does mean that I go to court quite a lot, albeit for civil claims, not criminal claims. But what I really tried to do anyway with the whole process was keep it very simple. I think if you were to sit through a whole trial written in a book, it would probably be quite dull because there's a lot of procedure there. So I think most of the legal procedural stuff was fairly familiar to me and I kept it quite low key. The rest is really from my imagination. If you were to give us a few messages, without obviously spoiling anything for our listeners, what sort of messages, or is it really just a yarn, a good old-fashioned yarn? Was it something you wanted to say behind the story? Yes, I think partly with my background and I think the fact 
I know that readers are intelligent readers and they like to read something they enjoy. But I know when I read something, I like to have something afterwards that is food for thought, that makes me reflect and and think about what I've read or equally when I see a film or TV programme. So I think that the big issue here that I'd like people to think about is whether people or machines are better in this case at determining whether somebody is innocent or guilty. Instead of a jury? Instead of a jury. And possibly if you were to take this to its extremes, instead of even having lawyers in a courtroom, because if you were to evolve a system that was very accurate, that could tell whether somebody was telling the truth or not, then you wouldn't really need anything other than the machine. Isn't truth though, I don't mean to say the whole, it's a relative concept, but often people can convince themselves and really have got it wrong, either because something what didn't quite happen the way they believed it had. But in the telling of it, they would be, quote, truthful, even though they were actually wrong. So they could either not be punished or be punished because something, their perception of it was different. Is that not why we were always going to need real members of the jury? Well, I have to say I'm on your side. <laughs> but Thank I, you. but I, and obviously, it gives you as, something to think about. Uh, yeah, as a lawyer, I wouldn't want to do myself out of a job either. It's very much for the debate to be had and for people to think about these things, and particularly when there is real pressure on the criminal justice system, costs pressure. I think that the figure was something like £220 million per year that the government has been trying to save for the last four years. I think anything which can save cost, and juries cost something like £3,000 a day. So anything that can save cost, I think, is going to be attractive. What's important, of course, is that we have a reliable system in place and one that we can all trust. It's a fabulous concept, really. And and actually, there are quite a number of people, speakers around at the moment, talking about lawyers being replaced by artificial intelligence in some format. Is this going to be taken to the powers that be in the criminal justice system? Is it something that you will give to them? Or is it more in that way, if you said there is a message, or is it more a story? I think for now, this is just a story. But as I say, if it encourages people to talk about these issues and think about them seriously, then I think that's great. And when do you find time to write? I was fortunate enough that I took a break from being in private practice at the end of 2014. And I actually wanted to make the transition to working in-house as a lawyer. And that transition took a bit longer than I expected. So that's actually when I sat down and, and wrote the Pinocchio brief. Do you talk to other lawyers about the development of law? I mean, is, is this a subject that interests you? We're going to see more books along these sort of lines? Well, I am hoping to write a sequel, I have to say. And I can't tell you exactly yet. Featuring technology. <laughs> whether it'll have the same kind of themes. But. And the book is out at the moment or is it coming out soon? It will be in bookshops from probably about the third week in July. I will be having a launch in a couple of weeks' time and it is available on Amazon and from my publisher, Lightning Books, to order now. Abby Silver, author of The Pinocchio Brief, speaking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about the publishing of her first novel. For more information, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's schmooze. A reminder, we live stream our schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British summertime. That all-important address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out some of those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. 
Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. And of course, all of those details can be found at our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Now, we spoke at length on last week's show about the devastating way that fire has affected many communities and families in this great city of ours in recent times. One man in particular has gone to extraordinary lengths to help one couple left homeless after their flat was burnt out following the fire at Kay's supermarket in Golders Green. Businessman Larry Berkowitz has not only offered Sill and Riv temporary accommodation rent-free, but he's also offered them paid jobs. I know, it's amazing. Community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Larry to find out more, and she started by asking him to tell us when he first heard about the disaster. We heard about it during the day with my work. You know, we have a domiciliary care company, and my carers are busy using public transport. They're going in and out of Gold's Green, in and out of Hendon. And we didn't know what was going on, but we heard some sort of commotion. We were struggling to get to our customers on time. And stories started floating back to us during the course of the day. There was some sort of fire, and we didn't know much more than that initially. And then you noticed something on Facebook, I gather. Yes. I was lying in bed, just going through Facebook. I saw these horrific pictures of smoke and smog and tragedy everywhere. And it suddenly struck all the bells. This is home. And I saw a message someone posted there that a particular couple was left on the streets and destitute, had nowhere else to go, and somehow they'd fallen into the cracks and they were waiting for things to happen. But in the meantime, they were homeless, jobless, and with nothing. And and virtually destitute. Now, now this is a couple called Sil and Riv. They're both from Africa originally, and they were presumably in a flat above the shop? Yes, that's correct. And you found them... I gather, literally sleeping on a street bench. That's 100% correct. They were literally sleep- one was sleeping on the bench and the other on the pavement. Was this very early Monday morning or, or something like that? It happened about two, three days later I got wind of their story because they were on the street for two, three days. Were they? So who was feeding them? I mean, how did they manage them? Presumably they were only in the clothes they stood up in. The clothes 100% correct. People were coming to the area and dropping off charity boxes and foods and bits and pieces, and they were sort of getting, you know, a bit, bit here and a bit there, but quite frankly, not much. And their bank cards had been burnt, their IDs had been burnt, so they couldn't even go to the bank with you know, and ask for money. It was just a closed situation. Yes, they suddenly become completely faceless. Totally, 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 totally. Absolutely. So now we've got to the stage where you've you've actually met them at that point? Did you no, go meet no, them? No? No. no. I, I got this post. All I knew was a couple living in Golders Green and they were homeless and nowhere to go and it just sent you know, shivers down my back. That could have been me. Could be could be my family. This was a family watching T V one Sunday night, enjoying the luxuries of lifestyles ordinary living ordinary lifestyle correct Absolutely. and suddenly within a quick flash and not not even their fire it wasn't started by them or their you know their carelessness it was underneath them underneath them but simply a matter of being in the wrong place the wrong time their life was f- literally flipped up, upside down right and they escaped uh, I assume without injury without physical injury you know good point without physical injury 
Yes. There is unfortunately, and always is in these situations, mental injury and mental scars. Sometimes they only come out afterwards. This is trauma we're talking about. Trauma, yes. trauma. What did you do then? How did you, how did you feel you needed to act from then onwards? Okay, I contacted the particular person advertising, you know, requesting accommodation. And I said, I have a place. It's in Edgware. They can have it as long as they want. And when can they come? And the next day I met them in the morning. It was just hugs all around. I took them to the flat, gave them the keys, said, welcome home. And we began to chat. I began to understand their background. They, were, they told me they're looking for jobs. They fitted the profile I was looking for. I offered them a job around themselves. And it was never a condition that they had a job to stay in the flat. What sort of job did you offer them? Care jobs, caring jobs. Now, Syl is a student. She's busy studying at Middlesex University. So I said, you know, come weekends, if she needs a bit of extra money, come holidays, we have jobs for her, evenings, so on. And yeah, they were only too excited. Of course, so what we try and do now is we're trying to give them back their identification. Because right now they are literally nobodies, and it's and I know I know I hear that the banks and the insurance companies are doing their level best to bend the rules, as it were, for people without any form of identity in, in order to get something, and only temporarily. Did you find that Barnet Council were helpful at all? They are helpful, but the problem is, like like all the councils, there's a lot there's a lot they're dealing with at one point in time. And there's a lot of situations which aren't always as extreme as this that might be in the queue before them. And their situation is dire, it's urgent. And I didn't want to wait for the paperwork to get settled and for, you know, and for someone to sort of tick all the boxes and ask the right questions. I thought, let's just bridge that gap. Let's give them a place to stay. They can sleep at night time, not have to panic about tomorrow, what they're gonna do, what they're gonna eat. And the community has been amazing. People have come forward. They've offered counselling and proper psychologists, not just laymen like myself, right. which probably you know mess their minds up, you know, have come through and uh, given them counselling in in the office in, in, a, in a secure environment. What about funds? Well, for the moment, I've made sure they got enough to eat. They got food on their table for as, as long as they're there. They have internet. They got mobile phones. Effectively, they got rent-free accommodation. They don't have too many other expenses at this stage once they have all those boxes ticked off. They are trying to now appeal and apply to the council for funds and help and bursaries and so forth. And it's all happening, you know, it's, it's, but it takes time. As you're aware at the moment, there's so much going on in our local environment. Quite. You know, that's it's yes. just unfortunate whoever gets to the table first. Quite a, one disaster after the next. Correct, correct. But this could have been a tragedy which you managed to avert. Yeah, no, look, I mean, there was a little dog involved in this whole story. I heard but, about her, yeah, Daisy. Daisy, yes. bless her. And I, I'm a huge dog fan. Just, Me too. Uh, I, I, I get tears. And she died, and didn't she? she? Died, and she's, she's the real hero. Right. As far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Because take Daisy out of the equation, everyone would have gone. Ah, well, at least you were there to step in. Thank you. And that's all I, I, that's all I consider, just stepping in, bridging a gap. And, yeah, just I'm happy to give a hand. 
What a truly remarkable individual and so modest to boot. Businessman Larry Berkowitz talking to community editor Diana Toman there about not only rehousing a couple who were affected by the fire at Case Supermarket in Golders Green, but he was also offering them jobs as well. And it got me thinking that in and amongst all of this horrible darkness, and I know this is going to sound very preachy now, but it is true that the darkness that this country has seen over the past few weeks it does go to show that if you look deeply enough, there are people who are doing really good things. And obviously that was demonstrated on a very large scale with the Grenfell Tower disaster as well, when we saw all the community come together there. But to look at it under the microscope at a real individual level, I just think it takes people like Larry Berkowitz to actually remind us that, you know what, in and amongst all of the bad stuff that does make the news, which unfortunately we're all far too often talking about on this programme, that luckily there are people who are doing some good things as well. And in fact, actually, there's a really nice photo of Larry with the couple that he helped on our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so mm -hmm. far. Joining Tony Honigberg and me today are author Jeremy Havadi and founder of West End Travel, David Siegel. The subject today is based on what we heard in the news earlier on with Viv. Sunday, the 18th of June, saw the annual Al-Quds Day March take place in central London. The controversial event was strewn with participants holding the Palestinian and Hezbollah terror flag. The question is, how do we feel about an openly anti-Israel event being allowed to take place in the capital? Jeremy, let's start with you. I'm sure none of us are thrilled, but how does it make you feel personally when you see the Al-Quds Day March taking place? Affronted, I think, would be my reaction. In general, I do support freedom of speech. In general, I don't think that we should be clamping down on on the ability of groups to organise, even if it's extreme anti-Israel activity. I think that you know you'd have to balance your own dislike of it with freedom of speech. But I think on this occasion, I would say that it's an affront and that such an event should not be taking place. And the reason why is very simply because Hezbollah is an internationally prescribed terrorist organisation committed not just to the destruction of Israel, but to the killing of Jews around the world. Because of that position, when people are openly marching and doing so in the cause of that organisation, then I'm basically, as far as I'm concerned, it's something that should simply not be taking place. It's an affront to Jews, but actually more to the point, it should be an affront to pretty much everybody. Imagine if we had, for example, people marching with the Islamic State flag. Would we not all feel affronted? Not just those who might be the more immediate victims, but everybody. This is a slightly difficult because they say that the they were marching as the political arm of Hezbollah and not as the terrorist arm of Hezbollah. We can't tell the difference, of course, because the flag is exactly the same, unlike when the IRA were marching or, or doing things. How do we combat that? Because some of them were obviously political. Not, I don't say 100% of the people marching were terrorists. Well, the thing is, I would counter it by saying that that differentiation is not plausible. I simply reject that there's a distinction really between the two. You know, Hezbollah as an organisation may have, if you like, a political arm that's engaged in, in the politics of Lebanon, but 
as an organisation, it remains committed to certain fundamental things. The destruction of another UN member state, it's deeply anti-Semitic and it supports terrorist activity. So I think that's how I would counter it. I'm quite happy for people to organise and march, for example, as they have so many times, if there's a war in Gaza and they wish to parade their anti-Israel hatred. That's one thing. But I think when you're openly marching with the flag of an internationally prescribed organisation, then I think you've stepped over the line. And do, I think you have to David, how do you feel? This particular event on the 18th of June, Clive, has crossed the red line. There are events, there are marches, there's free speech. I'm a great believer in free speech. But let's just reverse it for a moment. Supposing Israel or the Jewish community had decided to do a march anti-everybody, anti-Hezbollah, anti ISIS, anti-everybody, and they went marching through Trafalgar Square up to Westminster Abbey or Parliament Building, there would be a massive outcry because this is a Jewish, and they're a Jewish event and it's Jewish-inspired, and therefore I really believe they are simply double standards when it comes to our community. Just to be really fair about this, there was, I think a year or 18 months ago, there was a Jewish-stroke-Israel festival in Trafalgar Square, which was an immense success. It was an immense success. Not one single person, whether there were 400 there or 4,000 or 14,000, I don't think there would be one particular single person in that audience, call it that, who would say death to the Palestinians, death to everybody else. And if you read this sad event at Grenfell Tower, I actually read that they were blaming the Zionists for that as well. One of the hate preachers stood up and said it's a conservative government, Zionist-inspired, and therefore the Jews, the Zionists, are pretty much responsible for this terrible event which happened in London last week, in the same way, Clive, as they blame Israel for the Twin Towers in New York so many years ago. Yeah, but there are all sorts of stories but from people all believe sorts it. of people who say things about the Twin... I met a cab driver the other day who gave me a long lecture about how that thing in New York that was all done by the United States themselves because they wanted to put the blame on somebody else. Yes, but they've said there'll always be someone out there who will believe it. They've got takers. Someone will believe it. Taking the devil's view, if you like, they would say the same about you. They will say the same thing that this is what you're doing. They probably would. That's uh, indoctrinated into them from day one. So nothing is going to change. Where do you cross over banning freedom of speech? Because you, you, Fair question. Because there must be a crossover point. And, and then do you ban all freedom of speech or just certain parts no, of it? No, you can't ban freedom of exactly. speech as it is. I think it's when the police get involved, when they've decided to cancel. Like there was a march planned not that long ago. I don't even remember who it was, but it was Golders Green. Hmm. When they were planning this hate march, this anti-Jewish march, this anti-Semitic, everything designed to mean us and create maximum grief to the community. And finally, the police actually stepped in and cancelled him. Why did they do that? I'm not sure. But I mean, I, I think to answer your question about freedom of speech and where you draw the line, I mean, in general, it's a sacrosanct principle in our society. But freedom of speech is never and should never be absolute. You know, one can't just create a website naming people as paedophiles if it's not true. One can't reveal mm. whether tried to happen to be yeah. at any one minute. The point is that there are always issues. You can't issues. be libelous. Or exactly. Or so in this case, I would say if you are marching for an organisation that is prescribed as a terrorist group, which has killed people and which therefore threatens incitement, then I think that's where you have to draw the line. Now, you're not necessarily inciting hatred by simply making crackpot conspiracy theories about Zionists, but I think if you are openly supportive of Islamic State 
or IRA in the 1980s or Hezbollah or Hamas today, then I think that is a very different thing. Clive, I don't think it in all sincerity ever stop. And if it's taken away from the open, then it'll go underground, it'll go, it'll go undercover, it'll still reach the ears of the people who want to hear it. Well, if he wants to go undercover, it's much better that they should do it openly then, isn't it? To some extent, at least you know where it is. That argument has been made, but I mean, would you also say, for example, that an Islamist hate preacher should be allowed to quite openly, you know, parade their prejudice like uh, Abu Hamza did? Yeah, or, but that's, or do you, that or do you was clamp stopped, down? wasn't it? It that was, stopped. But, but, but the argument could be made, let them do it and open, because if they don't do it openly, then they can do it privately. And I would argue that actually the moment that you do hear that they're openly parading their hatred, you need to clamp down on them very strongly and with criminal sanctions. Well, that does happen, doesn't it? It obviously does, but the argument is still made that it shouldn't, and I think we need to be very clear about where the boundaries of free speech lie. And the balance the balance of free speech, it's a very finely tuned balance, because, as you say, where do you draw the line? Everyone has a right. That's all four of us sitting in this studio. We have the right now to go out in Golders Green Road or wherever we want to, in Stamford Hill, anywhere Finchley Central, stand on a soapbox and spout out whatever we want, and provided it's not inciting crime or hatred or murder, we would get away with it. So if we can do it, this freedom of speech is a very powerful tool. And one of the things which this country have always banged on about, about the democracy, much of it is covered by this aspect of freedom of speech, whatever that means. You yourself know, Clive, you go to some countries in the Middle East, there's no freedom of speech whatsoever. Oh, that's certainly true. But And if there is, you're in big trouble. I've, I've got a couple of message on, on Facebook, if I can just interrupt, from Edmund who says, sadly, the UK government prefers and supports the Arabs more than the Jews. It's all down to money and oil at the end of the day. Always has been the case, and it's only now getting worse. Isn't that putting it a little bit strongly? I don't agree with that, Edmund, with due respect. I think it's a little bit an overreaction in what you've just written, but thank you anyway. You're talking about standing up and saying whatever you like anywhere in London. I don't think it's absolutely true. You can do it at Speaker's Corner at Marble Arch, but I'm not sure if you took up a pedestal in the middle of Golders Green and stood up and started making comments that you would be allowed to do it, even if your comments were quite well, harmless. Well, you're not allowed to incite hatred. Maybe that's what the thing on Sunday was. Maybe they were inciting hatred. Even if it wasn't verbally, visually, they're inciting hatred. You see, they have one thing in common. However many people there are there, they have one fundamental thing in common, and that is the hatred of Jews and the hatred of Israel. And it doesn't follow necessarily when we gather as a community that we have that same intense hatred from our perspective as they seem to have from theirs. And back to free speech, this government any government allows free speech almost to from A to Z without interference. And generally, if the police do step in, it's probably too late anyway. But I want to ask you one question, if I may. This event which was planned, this I believe it was National Front, but I'm not sure, in Golders Green, which was cancelled about a half a year or a year ago, why was it cancelled? It was cancelled because it was thought to be... Inciting, provocative. Provocative yes. and inciting provocative. hatred, yes. But according to the, the parameters of free speech, that goes... That's allowed. Allowed by whom? The government, the police. No, I'm sorry, I don't think that's at all true. I think you're exaggerating that slightly. I think the government does not accept and allow people to stand up and make rude comments about other people. I believe it was cancelled because of the location, because of a high number of Jewish people living in this area. But, uh, of course, in central London... 
it's not just location, it's, it's just covering everywhere. Isn't it? The reason why this is such an issue now, I think, perhaps even more so than many years earlier, and it's been going on since 79, is that we face this massive problem of jihadist terror. And we've lulled ourselves into a full sense of security, but in the last few months, we've had tragic reminders of the fact that we are under threat. Now, it may not be under threat every single day, but we are dealing with a major problem here. And that's why I think we need to sort of start drawing connections together, not just looking at one radical Islamist group in isolation, but understanding that it can be drawn into a web of terrorist associations. And therefore, you should take a kind of holistic view, really, in a way. And, you know, Hezbollah is one example of radical Islamic terror. And if you tolerate it on our streets, what else are you prepared to tolerate? I think you need to have a sensible crackdown. Because it is, it is inciting hatred, isn't it? It's inciting That's hatred. A, Barry has contacted us on Facebook also and said there's a clear difference between legitimate criticism of Israel and Jew-baiting, which should not be allowed in any media. Well, I think that's which, a very which good, is, point. Yeah, good point. Very valid. I agree with him. Yes, yeah. that's absolutely right. You can always criticise any nation or people or religion. You have a right to criticise them, but never to do worse than that. Mm. No, I agree. And of course, yes, the whole point is the Islamic Republic of Iran since 1979, its foreign policy has been predicated on the outright elimination of and annihilation of Israel. They've never been in the business of legitimate criticism or even illegitimate criticism. For them, it's all black and white, nightmarish vision of the destruction of another country. And am I right in thinking that Iran finances Hezbollah? Hezbollah it does, yes. I mean, Hezbollah is an Iranian proxy. Mm. But of course, these things are not just run. They're going to happen anyway, aren't they? Because it, throughout the world, there are these hatreds and people demonstrating against them and murdering against them. And the truly evil ones are doing all these terrible murders as they did recently in London, in London Bridge and at Westminster. They're doing it because they are completely and utterly mad. And they have to be stopped, and people are trying to stop them. But how do we stop them, Clive? How do we stop them? How do, where do you draw the line? Well, this country, I think, does very well in trying to stop them. The, the, apparently, I mean, uh, one doesn't know, one reads, that there have been many, many, many things stopped in this country by the police. And This just happens to be a new tactic, which they haven't quite got round to learning, I guess, how to stop it before it happens. How do you stop it? Some of the people that have been carrying out these atrocities were known to police beforehand. Mm. I, be I believe even one was on a Channel 4 TV programme spouting off uh, about his hatred. and uh, But the police did nothing about it. But I guess there's a legal... Uh, system that you can't hold people if you've got nothing to hold them for? Well, our first line of defence is intelligence. And unfortunately, well, it's true that our intelligence services have stopped many, many attacks, but they are dwarfed by the sheer scale of what they're dealing with. We're talking about apparently 3,000 people that they need to monitor intensively. Well, yeah. if one person being monitored requires dozens of intelligence agents, then clearly they have to be very selective about what they're dealing with. And that's why there is actually an argument for things like, as I've said, control orders. Yeah, and um, take, this, take this nutter who went to Finsbury Park the other day mm -hmm. and caused this atrocity. How will the intelligence of people have known that a guy from Cardiff is about to get into a van and smash into people coming out mm -hmm. of press? And I must say, 
I was deeply disturbed by that, and I hope most of the Jewish community were. Of course, were. of I course. Think, deeply we disturbed. Yes, well, I, that's sadly where we have to leave it because our time is up. But my thanks to our guests, journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and founder of West End Travel, David Siegel. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. But it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. This time it comes from Rabbi Michael Evon David from Edgware, Masorti Synagogue. Lately, I have been thinking much about the differences between people, whether religious, political or ethical, and how these differences often makes us very passionate, sometimes to the point of denouncing the other as evil and sometimes to the point of violence. In the Mishnah, the main source of the Jewish oral law, the rabbi said, Hevi dan et kol adam It is a religious commandment to judge every person favorably, meaning thinking the best about the other. Sometimes, when we think of those that have a different political view, or practice a different religion, or even have our same religion but practice differently, sometimes we believe the other is an heretic that has the intention of damaging our tradition that willingly perverts the principles of our religion to serve petty objectives. Certainly, I have been told that my way of practicing and studying Judaism is a disaster, that the Shoah happened because of me, that terrorism happens because of me, that assimilation happens because of me, that on purpose I and those like me want to destroy Jewish tradition. And I wonder, can't we believe that the other has the best intentions at heart? Can't we trust that each stream of Judaism loves the Torah and wants to live a life of sanctity, of meaning and service to God? I must not agree with the way they do it, but I do believe I can trust they have the best intention in their heart. We should celebrate that the Torah is so rich and deep that it has so many faces interpretations and points of view. We should celebrate that we all work in our way and according to our faith to create a vibrant Judaism and a better world. Mm, well, one can only hope that the image of not just Jewish leaders but all community leaders coming together this week in light of the Finsbury Park mosque attack will go some way to reassure the vision of Rabbi Michael Evan David there may one day come true. Thank you very much. All the same to Rabbi Michael Evan David from Edgware Mazorti Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Rabbi Herschel Gluck, telling us about the meeting with other faith leaders following the Finsbury Park mosque attack. To Abby Silver, talking about her new book, The Pinocchio Brief. To Larry Berkowitz and the remarkable lengths he's gone to to help one couple after the Golders Green fire. Thanks also to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Tony Honickberg, Sue Greenberg and Harley Baptiste.
You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen again to all previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.